right? Wow. Now, this is a bit of a revealing question. I sometimes start with a question, but a bit of a revealing one. How many of you have got to the stage in life where the days seem to go quite quickly? Yeah, okay, a few. There's a couple of younger ones looking around going, no, not me. They're an eternity. Just every day takes so long to get through. You probably remember that, don't you? The time when the days took a long time to get through. And it seemed like you're waiting for a long time for anything to happen. And now, as I look at my own life and the, the passage of days, if I was to ask us, how was Tuesday? Most of us go, Tuesday. Is that different to Wednesday? Kind of all blur into one after a while, don't they? And, and the days just go so quickly and so much... Kind of, we're just on to the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, as we're passing through each day. Jesus had many unrecorded days. There were many days that we don't read what he did, we don't know what happened, we don't know the story. And I want to talk about one day with Jesus. Just one day in Jesus' life. And uh, we're going to look at some scriptures. Uh, Obi, I wonder if you could put them on the screen for us, just to start off that first slide. Um, thank you. I want to look at some scriptures in Luke chapter 4, and I'm going to read a few verses. Uh, Hopefully you can see all of this. Okay. Um, We're going to read about 13, 14 verses, that sort of length, just a couple of screens of this. And then I want to look at this this one day with Jesus that we're we're reading about today. Luke chapter 4, verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are, with authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset... The people brought to Jesus all who had, ne- all who had various kinds of illnesses, and he laid his, ha- laid his hands on each one. And he healed them. Let's get the right verse, because I'm trying to read the screen and my Bible at once. Here we go. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. People were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, They tried to keep him from leaving them, but he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. There could potentially be a gap in this, but I want to present this as if it's just one day with Jesus. One day, beginning to end, goes to Capernaum, preaches... Uh, there's some, some stuff happens there. Goes to Simon's mother in, mother-in-law's, uh, sorry, goes to Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law is there, heals her. People bring the sick to be healed, and then it's daybreak onto a new day. How many of you have been to Israel? A few of you have actually been. Quite a few of you have been. Okay, put your hands down again. I've never been, but would love to go. 
Um, I wouldn't particularly want to go to some of the sites, you know, the really touristy ones, because I've heard they're a bit blingy these days. Um, but the bits I'd love to go to is to walk where Jesus walked. I don't know if you'd like to do the same, if you haven't been. Just to walk along the Sea of Galilee, to see the sights, to sort of breathe in the air. I guess it's the same air as anywhere else. I guess the grass is still grassy, and the sand is still sandy, and the mud is still muddy. But there's something, I think, about being there that I just would love to do, to, to be there in that place, and to, to experience what Jesus might have experienced looking at those sites. And one, one journey I'd like to do is this journey from Nazareth to Capernaum. It's about 20 miles about 20 miles and there's a journey that Jesus takes where he's been in Nazareth and he sets off towards Capernaum. And I'd love to know, this is impossible, but I'd love to know what was going through Jesus' mind as he walked on that journey. Because this passage starts, then he went down to Capernaum. And we're sometimes not helped in our Bibles because we get little headings that, that stop us reading the bit before. I want to just show you what the bit before was to remind you, because I spoke on this a few weeks ago, and to, to explain why I'm so intrigued into this journey with Jesus and what it might be like. You see, this is the bit before, and then the bit after that we've just read. This is Jesus preaching in Nazareth, and it says this, they got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the, just to check, they didn't drive him in a car, they pushed him to the edge of the town, kind of forced him out, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee. Now perhaps why you can see why I'm so intrigued as to what might have been going through Jesus' mind on that journey. He leaves Nazareth, having nearly been pushed off a cliff, and he walks towards Capernaum. What a journey that would be. To be able to unpack with Jesus what's going through his mind right there and then. What he's experiencing, what's going through his thinking processes, how he's reflecting on his first preach. Jesus, how do you think it went? It's your first sermon ever. Not preached before. Stood up in the synagogue. You've been preaching for a little while, but you stand up on this particular day and... In, in the same place, and you're, you're preaching, and, and it's not really gone terribly well, has it? What do you think? Some of you know this story, but I, it's not my first preach. That was a couple of years before. But when I was just at Bible college, I've been there one term. And those of you who have heard much about Bible colleges realize that they don't prepare you for a great deal of practical ministry, but they do do some value. But my church down in Devon asked me if I would speak uh, on my return at Christmas. So I'd been there all of one term. I was 18 years old uh, and stood up in front of a couple of hundred people and, and stammeringly shared my first full message. I'd done a bit of one, but this is my first full one. And I'd prepped and prayed, kind of nervous, as, 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 as I still am. <laughs> and I felt God had given me a word on unity. And so I preached my little word on unity and sat down again 20 minutes later. Six months later, the church split. doesn't exist anymore. That was your first sermon, Stuart. It was great. <laughs> New ministry. Never get invited to preach anywhere else. <laughs> it's 
the fabulous division ministry. It's great. Maybe, just maybe, God wanted to say something that day. I don't know. There were lots of other good preachers there. Um, But how did this first sermon go for Jesus? Not particularly well. He was nearly pushed off a cliff. And I'd love to have known, Jesus, what is it? What's going on? What do you think? You see, because if that had been me, if that had been me, I think I would have responded very differently to Jesus. I don't want to assume that he's disappointed. I want to talk about dealing with disappointments. I don't want to assume Jesus is because we don't know his mind, but I know I would have been. I know I would have been so disappointed because it hadn't gone as I'd hoped. I, I think I would have just said, that's it, it's me. This, thing, this whole preaching thing is not for me. It's not, I'm not cracked up to do this. It's, not, it's not going to work. I'll run away and do something else. But Jesus responds by going to Capernaum and on Sabbath teaching the people. He sets off to do the very thing he's just done when the very thing he just did didn't work in human terms. When his expectations may not have been met. And I just want to ask, what's it like for us when things don't go as you hope? When the Maybe the promotion you wanted doesn't come through and someone else gets it. When you've tried really hard to do something good, you've, you've felt prompted to do something in a particular way at a particular time and it's just gone sour. You, you went with the best of intentions to have that conversation and it wasn't received well and, and actually now it's made things worse. And you go home disappointed. What about the times when you've got a friend who's sick and you've prayed for them and nothing seems to have happened? What then? Those times when you've stepped out and they're still sick or they've got worse or you've showed kindness to someone it's been turned back on you. Those times of disappointment when our expectations aren't met, what do we do? I just want to talk a little bit about this before coming back to this passage again and just to set it, I suppose, in, to, to show how important this is. You see, disappointment is really dangerous. Disappointment is dangerous. It affects everything. I know from my own life and what I've seen in other people's lives that disappointment affects us greatly. It, it's, it's very dangerous. It ruins relationships. It steals hope and it kills faith. It has an effect and it leaves its mark. When you've tried something good and it hasn't worked... Some of us determine never to do that thing again. I went for a run once, didn't, I hurt my leg, never doing it again. Never doing any exercise whatsoever, it's bad for you. And that's actually not far off, because I have got a dodgy knee, and I did it running, and I've been told not to road run again, which isn't a great disappointment, if I'm honest. Because I wasn't planning to anyway. It's one of the nicest things the doctor said to me. But sometimes you step out and you try something and you can say, that's it, I've packaged that up, I'm never making myself vulnerable again like that. I'm not going to pray for someone again because it didn't happen the way I expected. Because I got hurt and I don't want to be put in that place again. Some of us don't even get that far. We imagine getting hurt, we imagine being disappointed, and so we back off before the disappointment can possibly hit us. Because we're that afraid of being disappointed, we don't even enter into the situation where we're made vulnerable. 
We think it through, we strategically approach it, and we look at what's going to happen, and we go, well, if I do this, this could be the outcome, and it might be disappointing, therefore, I won't. Disappointment is that powerful over us that some of us don't even try in case we're disappointed. I know this is the case. I, I battle with this sometimes in my own life. Disappointment can be like a derailment. It takes us off course. When you set out on a course to get somewhere, it can take you off course and you end up somewhere you're not meant to go. I looked up this route from Nazareth to Capernaum. I discovered that it goes through Cana. You know where Jesus does the miracle of the water into wine? It goes through Cana. It also goes through Gennesaret, a little place on the the top of the, the Sea of Galilee there, before getting to Capernaum. He'd have gone through Cana, gone through Gennesaret to get to Capernaum. And, and I can imagine that many of us, having had that kind of disappointment, would have got to Cana and gone, oh, this will do. I'll, I think I'll just stay here. You know, I hear that they do a good line in weddings here. I'll just stick around and wait for the next party and it'll be okay. And I'll pretend the whole preaching thing was just something that I tried and didn't work and I'll let someone else get on with it. But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes through Cana He goes through Gennesaret. He carries on to get to Capernaum. Unaddressed disappointment does not lead us towards God's possibilities for our lives. Unaddressed disappointment causes us to stop or react out of that pain. Disappointment is also a disease, like a disease. It's not a disease, but it spreads like one and it affects other people around you. If I was to ask us, how many of us are aware of someone who is carrying disappointment in their lives? We would probably be able to identify somebody who lives with disappointment. And, and, and that can sometimes can come out and can affect relationships and can affect other people too. So what do we do about it? Well, I want to encourage you to deal fast with it. I, I don't know if Jesus was disappointed. I know I would be in his situation, but... Do, it, do something fast about it. Psalm 43, verse 5 says this, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is a little clue I want to, to come to, to addressing disappointment. And, and all we're doing at the moment is looking at this very first line of this passage in Luke to see Jesus on his way to Capernaum and just referencing where's he just been and what, that might, what might that mean for him. So firstly, why, my soul, are you downcast? Just acknowledge that you're disappointed. If you are disappointed, if you've stepped out and trusted God and it doesn't seem to have worked, or if you've tried something and it's just not happened as you thought, just acknowledge what you're going through. Acknowledge what you're feeling. Notice that you're feeling disappointed if that's what you are feeling. And then question it. Why? Why are you downcast? Why am I disappointed? What was I hoping for? What do I feel let down about? What what were my expectations? What's going on? Look at the third line. Put your hope in God. Trust God in the middle of whatever you're feeling. Trust God. It might take time, but trust God with it, if you're grieving, be honest before God, but still trust him at the same time. Don't wait for it to finish before trusting him. And then Jesus gives us a brilliant example of what to do. Move on 
in God. He doesn't let yesterday's disappointment rob him of today's opportunities. He goes again into a similar situation. Now, I would always have encouraged people to do this, to acknowledge it, question it, trust God, and move on. But I'm learning that sometimes, as I'm as you kind of go through life and you walk with Jesus a bit more, sometimes you have a bit more insight a few years down the line than you did at the time. And sometimes it's worth just going back when God prompts you and revisiting a place of disappointment with that new learning and just reviewing it again and saying, okay, now I see what God was doing. Or now I see how I was feeling these things and why. God, I'm going to bring that to you again. We don't wallow in it. We don't go back for the sake of feeling disappointed all over again, but we go back sometimes to look at things that have happened with fresh learning, fresh revelation, and then we can see God working out his purposes again in a new way as we do so. I want to see more than just that first line in this passage because I want to increase the contrast, if you like, disappointment on the one hand, but we're going to see something else on the other. And as we read through this passage about Jesus going to Capernaum and teaching the people, they're amazed at his teaching. As he stands up to speak, he's different from all the other teachers they've ever heard. The rabbis were famous for quoting other people. Their idea of authority was that uh, rabbinical authority was passed down through learning. You sat at the feet of another learned rabbi, and they taught you, and you quoted them, and you learned what the other rabbis said, and so you quoted everybody else. There's one rabbi, one rabbi who prided himself on never having had an original thought. He actually made it his, sort of, his claim. I've never had an original thought. And that's, that's kind of a sign of how studious he was, because he wasn't just making things up. He, he'd actually studied everything and could reference and quote everything, everybody for everything. Not perhaps the most inspiring person to listen to, but well-referenced. Great footnotes. That was that rabbi. But Jesus isn't like that because he doesn't stand up and say, Rabbi so-and-so says. He's not like a scribe who says, this is what it says in the word. He's not like a prophet who stands up and says, thus saith the Lord. Jesus stands in front of the people and he says, I say to you. And he's not quoting a rabbi. He's not quoting just scripture. He's not just saying, thus saith the Lord, but he's saying, I say. And they're amazed at his teaching because his words have authority referenced in him. Jesus stands up in the synagogue, and and as he does so, a demon-possessed man cries out. And cries out, go away, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus says sternly, come out of him. And the demon throws the man down before them, and comes out without injuring the man. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. I want you to notice, as I did, that they're not amazed that there are impure spirits. They're not shocked. That They're not concerned that there are demonic spirits. They're, they're amazed at how Jesus delivers the man of them. That's the amazement. It's not, oh, we weren't expecting that, because there were Jewish exorcists around at the time. They practiced uh, these things and getting, trying to get rid of demons with mixed success. But the difference with Jesus is that he speaks a word and the person is set free. It's at the power of his word. Not not some kind of potions, not not a long process, but he speaks a word and they're amazed because, and, and notice this, 
It's with authority and power. So they've got this combination of Jesus' spoken authority, then the practical power they've seen, the demonstration of power. Put two together and you've got an amazing combination. Jesus has authority to teach. He has authority over the demonic. Just, just on, on this one of demonic, just notice a few things with me if you've got your Bible open at Luke 4. Uh, the demon was scared of Jesus, was nervous around his authority. And I want you to be encouraged today that the name of Jesus has all authority. We do not need to fear the demonic. Those of you that have dealt with this stuff, from time to time, don't go looking for it, but like Jesus didn't, it crops up and he deals with it. You don't need to go looking for the work of the demonic around us. But when it crops up, Jesus deals with it and his name is powerful. And he sets the captive free. The demon's aware of who Jesus is and Jesus isn't bothered about that or impressed. He tells it to be quiet. And I want us just to note very quickly the difference between belief and faith or understanding and faith more specifically. What's the difference between understanding and faith? Well, the demon has understanding, but has no faith. The demon cries out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? We know who you, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So out of all the people there, right there and then, or all the spiritual forces around, the one other than Jesus that knows who he is, is a demon. Jesus is teaching and preaching and healing, he's about to start healing, He's about to start showing people who he is and at some point they'll catch on and they'll go, you're the Holy One of God. Even that in itself isn't enough. What they then need to do is go, you're the Holy One of God. I'll follow you. I'll believe in you. I'll obey you. I'll submit to you. I'll love you. You'll be my Lord, my friend, my Savior. There'll be a response of faith after the understanding. And here, what we've got is understanding, but no faith. And when we're chatting to people about who God is, we can chat and chat and chat, and we can argue and debate, and we can learn apologetics to convince people that God exists, but even with understanding and no faith, they're still just as lost as they are without either. It's faith that saves. This demonic voice doesn't save anybody. And Jesus says, be quiet. And then we see Jesus going on to Simon's house. At this point in Luke's Gospel, Jesus hasn't called Simon yet. That's in the next chapter. So this is Simon, a bloke who's maybe hung around Jesus a bit. And we can tell that Simon's married. His mother-in-law lives at home with them. And Jesus is asked to heal her. And so he does with a word. He bends over and rebukes the fever and it leaves. We see incredible authority. In Jesus, And as he does this, word goes around and the crowds start to form. You will know that when there's miracles happening, crowds form. And when they're consistent, crowds get bigger and bigger and people want to come and see. Some bringing the sick and saying, please, because they've actually finally found some hope that someone can deliver them. And some just interested and wanting to see what's going on genuinely. Others perhaps skeptical, but there's often a crowd when there's healing. We see with these healings that as they come and gather, Jesus carries on healing. The Bible says in verse 40, at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of illness, and he laid his hands on them. 
So when everyone else is going to bed, Jesus is still healing and still working and still delivering people. The Bible says that various kinds of illnesses were brought. And he laid his hands on each one and he healed them. Again, there's more demons and he rebukes them and doesn't allow them to speak. So just in this little sort of cameo almost, we've got various kinds of sickness and Jesus lays hands on them and heals them. I want you to notice a couple of things. Various kinds. Jesus isn't bothered by how scary the sickness sounds. He heals it. He sets people free. It doesn't matter what, what diagnosis it is, what disease it is. He sets people free. With Simon's mother-in-law, he doesn't touch her. With these ones, he does touch them. With her, he rebukes a fever, and she's healed. With these, we don't know what he does. But he lays his hands on them, and they are healed. There's not a formula, there's not a a framework that's kind of set, and we say, well, we need to do uh, all of these things in order, and that will definitely work every time. Jesus is following what the Spirit's saying to him and following the prompting of God in this. Throughout all of this, and as chapters go by, people begin to look not just at what he's doing, not just at the deliverance and the healing and the teaching, but they're looking for the source of authority. Where do you get this authority from? Are you like a rabbi who's been schooled? No, they conclude. Are you like a prophet who has authority from God? What kind of, they conclude. And eventually, some probe Jesus, and and he teaches in John's Gospel in response to their challenges, I don't speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. And later on, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, rather it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Ultimately, Jesus has authority because he's the Son of God. He knows who his Father is, he knows who he is, and he carries authority. And that authority points to who he is and who God is. Now, that's all great because that's Jesus, but Jesus does something very scary. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, when his work was completed, he then says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. In Acts chapter 1, He says, wait in Jerusalem for the power will come on you and you'll be my witnesses. And and so what Jesus is doing at the end of his ministry, he then says, I've now received all authority, not just delegated to do some stuff, but all, and now I'm giving it to you to go and do what you need to do. That is the contrast. We have times when things don't seem to work as we thought they would, and yet we have Jesus seemingly able to heal any, any condition of those who come to him. Able to cast out the demons. Able to heal the sick. Able to raise the dead in other points. He has power over the storm. All power. And we have these two things side by side. God's authority and our disappointment at times. And I want to just turn to the passage at the back of this little story to help us with this. Because this is really personal for many people. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him 
And when they come to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them, but he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. At times in our lives and in the stories in the, in the Bible, we see God's authority and our disappointment side by side. In this passage, Jesus is saying, I know you want me to stay, but I must go on. You're going to be disappointed with me. You want one thing, but I've got another purpose, and I need to press on. I am not staying here. Jesus is not called to be the king of Capernaum. He's called to proclaim the kingdom of God across the whole area. He's not called to to stay and alleviate disappointment. He's called to bring God's purposes to many people. And we're left with this question, what do we do when God doesn't do what we want or what we expect? I just want to give a couple of encouragements before I wrap up. Jesus himself often experienced disappointment and struggle. There were times as you read through the gospel that Jesus is disappointed by the response of the disciples. He's been teaching and preaching. He's he's sharing in parables. He's explaining them and still they don't get them. And he says, oh, are you still so slow? He's disappointed at times. He's disappointed at times when, when, when people don't have any faith. And he goes somewhere and he's He's wanting to do miracles and he's wanting to, to preach and to see people saved and set free and, and there's no faith. And you get a sense, maybe he's not disappointed, but you get a sense of that when you read. When the religious authorities react in the way they do and the way they bind people up with regulations, I get a sense that Jesus is he's disappointed. He wanted more from them. He's hoping for more from them. He's saying, come on, you don't have to live like this. When his friend Lazarus dies. It's compassion. It might be empathy for the family. It might be all sorts of things. But is there, could there not just be just a sadness at what's, what he's stuck in? That, that his friend's died? That he's dealing with death of someone who, who he loves? Could there not just be a sadness there? Even a sense of disappointment that, oh, The reality of life and death has come home so close to him. Jesus is betrayed by one of the twelve, one that he went up a mountain to choose. Goes up a mountain and prays and and seeks God, and this this guy, Judas, betrays him. Jesus wrestles in a garden. Not literally wrestles, but wrestles with God, wrestles with what's ahead of him, just as he faces the cross. And he ends up on his knees. Father, not my will, but yours be done. I don't know that he's disappointed, but his outcome, the thing that everything within him is crying out for, is to have to to not go through the cross, to have to not go through separation with God, to have to not go through the pain and the difficulty that's ahead of him. But he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And then finally on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Carrying our sin. Carrying our burden. And in that moment, 
dealing with the same kind of questions we ask God. We sometimes get disappointed. Uh, And we can try and have neat answers as to why we are disappointed. We can, I've, I've heard people do it, explain away what God is doing at that time, but I'm not convinced that the Bible's actually very good at explaining an answer to the question why. There's a whole book on it if you want to find out. The book's called Job. And at the beginning of Job, we read the story of Job being quite a wealthy man, and he loses everything, and he's got several friends that come around him to explain to him why it's all his fault. Great friends to have. So if you're ever stuck and you've got friends around you telling you it's all your fault, then find some new friends uh, and hear from God in the middle of it all. But they're telling him it's, it's all his fault. That's the kind of traditional version of it, of how you understand these things. Then, on the other hand, Job himself is saying, well, eventually it's got to be God's fault. I'm not going to stop praising him, but it's got to be him that's responsible. Uh, so we're going to get this, this scenario set up where Job's friends are saying one thing and Job's saying something else, and then finally... God speaks. This is the great conclusion to the big question, why? Why do we suffer? What's the purpose of it? What's going on? What's the framework? And God just says, nothing that's of any use to answer the question whatsoever. He says, were you there? When the mountain goats give birth? Were you there when I put the sea in the storehouses? Were you there when I did this? Were you there when I did that? Were you there? And what God does is paint an enormous, great canvas picture of stuff that's far too big to be understood. So that Job can say, no, I wasn't. I wasn't there. No. And does Job get his question answered, why he suffered? No, he doesn't. But he just realizes in that moment that there's stuff going on that's above his pay grade. There's stuff going on that he he doesn't get, that he doesn't see. And and it's a a call to faith. That's all it is. It's a call to faith, which, of course, is the answer to the question, why? That's what the Bible has going through its pages, page after page after page. The neat answer is, trust me. But but, but, but God, why? Explain this. Let me make it logical. Please tell me what the outcome of this will be, what the purpose is. No, 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 trust me. Trust me. That's the neat answer to the question, why? And it isn't comfortable, but it is faith. It isn't always logical, but it is faith. It isn't always understanding, but the demons have understanding. We're called to have faith, not just understanding. What we see as we read through the pages of Scripture is sometimes God is doing something bigger than we can see. And we know from our own limited bit of experience There are times when the promotion you're going for that you don't get, it's actually a good thing you don't get it. A bit like Obi's story he was telling us earlier. When the relationship you're in breaks down, and it's actually a good thing it does, that we read in the scriptures when Jesus dying seems like the worst thing that could happen, but it's actually the best thing that could possibly be. We read the disciples hearing Jesus say, I'm going away, and it's good for you. And they're questioning. Sometimes God is doing something bigger than we can see. Secondly, sometimes God provides in other ways that don't seem supernatural. And we can write it off as being God. There's been times when Judith, of, Judith and I, particularly early in our marriage, needed finance. 
God was providing day after day. We told the stories at various points about how God was providing. But sometimes that was through other people. The generosity and kindness of other people. Now that was still God prompting them to give to us. And we were thankful for that. Because we need that. And by God's grace, we've been able to do the same to other people now. And that's how it works. It's still God at work. So don't write off the natural. If you are sick, we can pray and trust God, but it's a good idea to go to the doctor. Because God has given medical skills. I'm married to a nurse. I know these things. Judith has a whole bank of things she can supply to people to help make them better. We've discovered these things. I think that practical healing, in terms of our medical knowledge and divine healing, in terms of supernatural, are all part of divine healing, actually. And Jules was sharing a story last week about trusting God for her healing, but the story was that she'd been to the doctors and was trusting God. And you're still going to do the same. Go to the doctors and trust God, because it's important to. If you're sick, get someone to look at it. Then you know what you're praying for. Don't you? Then, you, then there's a real testimony. When God's at work and you can say, well, actually, this is what the doctors have said, and, 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 and I'm, I'm got, this is what God's doing, it's great, because you've got the combination of the two, then it's really important. Sometimes God's doing something bigger than we can see. Secondly, sometimes God provides in ways that don't seem supernatural. Thirdly, allow mystery in your faith. Allow for mystery in your faith. Jesus has given, been given authority over sin, authority over sickness, authority over death. He set people free from sin. He heals them of sickness. He gives eternal life. And yet still, all of us sin. All of us die. And all of us at some point get sick. It's a mystery. Jesus has complete authority over sin, sickness, and death, and yet we still die. All of us will unless he comes back before then. Every single one of us is guaranteed will die. No? Some of you look like that's a revelation to you. I'm really sorry if I've ruined the rest of your week. It is true. The old saying about death and taxes, it's the two inescapable things, unless you've got a really good accountant, and you can probably get out of one of them. And it's not death. We have a mystery that the kingdom is here, right now. Jesus has given authority to heal the sick. And he's commanded us to pray and to heal the sick. And yet at the same time, we're looking forward to a kingdom where all are well. And we have this now and still to come. There's a day coming when nobody will get healed. Absolutely nobody. There is no healing in heaven. Do you know that? There's no sickness. You don't need it. No healing ministry. No healing evangelists. No prayer lines. Nothing. It's great, isn't it? No hip replacements. Be like now, Alan, isn't it? Coming. What we have here is a foretaste of what's to come. We have to be really careful with this. And, and there's the tension. I want to just hold this because we can 
dealing with disappointment most often occurs when we're trusting God for stuff. And when we're most often trusting God for it, we're praying for stuff. It's those times we don't always see the answers we're expecting. We've got to be really careful. There's two tendencies we can do, which I want to be careful of. Sometimes we can allow our disappointment to mean that we package everything up and put it in heaven. Push, push it to the other side of the grave. We can say, okay, well, I didn't see what I wanted from God, therefore I'm going to stop praying for anybody to have a breakthrough now. And I'm just going to trust God for heaven. And we're going to hang on till we die. Now, we are meant to hang on, and we are meant to look forward to heaven, but actually God wants to bring some of that stuff now. So there's a now-ness to it. God wants us to pray now and see people delivered now. But at the same time, we're really careful that we don't get too disappointed that we're not seeing heaven now because we're still to wait for what's to come. And so we live in this tension of realizing that even if everybody got healed, they would still all die now. This isn't heaven. So we're still waiting for what is yet to come. One of the churches has been quite influential in breaking through in healing and it's kind of movement that's gone around the world, Bethel Church in, in America. Uh, great stuff going on in terms of healing. We've seen kind of lots of teaching on it. and Some of you will have come across it, Bethel and Redding, California. Uh, I had a, some of you know David Goodchild, who's a pastor over in Cranbrook, a passionate guy, prophetic guy. He's had a friend who's just been out there and spent three months out there in Bethel. Seen some great stuff happening. And his report back was very encouraging, but I picked up on all sorts of stuff in that. One of the things he said, and I'll be generous with the statistic rather than um, precise, he said less than, or the, the numbers of people getting healed are roughly 5%. And that's erring on the generous rather than the, the accurate. Uh, was 5%, roughly, of those who go for healing actually get healed at, at Bethel. And, and interesting, I thought. Interesting because I love the way they're pressing into pray. And they're not going, well, there's 100 people, 95 didn't get healed. They're not going, oh, well, that didn't work, did it? Let's stop. They're saying, wow, five got healed. Come on. Let's trust God. Let's trust God. And let's hold with all of these hundred, trusting God while we keep on praying. I like that. Because we're called to have faith. Now, we could answer the question, why do the 95 don't? I don't know. Genuinely. Because I'm holding out with God's complete authority, and sometimes it doesn't seem to work for me where I am. But if I knew... If I had a cast-iron guarantee that 5% return was what I was going to get when I prayed for however many people, I'd start praying for some more people. I really would. I wouldn't go, well, that's not a good enough return, Lord. I think I'll wait. I'd look for my 5%. I'd, I'd be praying over everybody for my 5%, because you might be the 5%. And you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't mind if I prayed for you, would you? If, you, if you, there was a possibility, 5% possibility. No, there's more than that in God, I'm sure. But just it's this whole concept that sometimes our disappointment can cause us to stop. We go, it didn't work, but actually maybe God's calling us to press in. That maybe like Jesus, we've left Nazareth, and something we went for didn't happen in the way we might have expected, but God's got more for us to come. And as we journey with him, there will be other disappointments in terms of our natural thinking. There'll be other things we try for that doesn't work. There'll be other things that we go for that, God doesn't seem to answer in the way we asked him to do it. Those 
What do we conclude? Have they sinned more? Have they got less faith? No. Be very, very careful of making conclusions. God has called us to faith. He called us to pray. He's called us to trust. He's called us to do what he sees the Father doing. That's it. If we see healing, great. If we see raising from the dead, great. If we see salvations, great. If not, let's keep trusting. Let's keep praying. Let's keep stepping out. The other week, I was just worshipping and spent some time uh, just on my own. I was just thinking about the stuff that goes on in our lives. I don't know if I was mulling on this sermon or just, just thinking. But this little phrase ran around in my mind, which was this. Yesterday is yours. Tomorrow is yours. And all I've got is this moment. And I want to live it for you. Yesterday is yours. Tomorrow is yours. All I've got is this moment and I want to live it for you. There are times when we seek God and we pray with faith and with confidence and with boldness and we don't seem to get the answer that we've asked him to do. We've given him a list and we've said, come on God, this is the way you're going to do it. And sometimes God seems to do something else or allow something else to happen. I'm not going to try and give you an answer for that because I, I don't have one. But I want to say in that moment, hold on. Hold on to faith. Hold on to him. And take the journey from Nazareth to Capernaum, from where you've been to where you're going, still holding on and still trusting. The ultimate hope is him. He is the answer. And in his presence one day, Maybe we'll have all of these questions answered. Maybe they won't matter anymore. When there's no more sickness, when there's no more death, when there's no more mourning or crying or pain, no more sin, and we can see him face to face, that day is his. Yesterday is also his, but today I want to urge you and encourage you to trust him. Shall we pray? Lord, as we've read through this scripture today, looking at a journey that Jesus took and then some stuff that he did, we see the incredible authority you have, Lord Jesus. We see your authority over the demonic, your authority over sickness, your authority to teach, and Lord, to be honest, you, you work in an authority that seems different to what we see in our own lives today. And yet, by faith, we know that you've placed the same Holy Spirit in us that raised you from the dead. By faith, we understand that we have as much authority as you did. And yet, Lord, we don't seem to get the same results that you got. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to switch on our brains, not switch them off, but use them to, to build faith. Use them to remind ourselves what you've done and who you are. Remind ourselves that we can trust in you and walk with you. That, Lord, being satisfied now 
in ourselves is not the answer. But being satisfied in you is our hope. And so I pray, Lord, for each and every one of us, whether we are facing, whether it seems as though every prayer we pray is answered just in the way we want, or it seems as though we're living with disappointment, God, that faith would rise up in our lives today. And that you would call us to simply pray and trust, to simply hope and walk with you, and that we would keep on journeying from where we've been to where you want us to go. In Jesus' name, amen.